welcome back to this special season of the Dyson House podcast on global health security. I'm James Kafke with the Australian Institute of International Affairs, Victoria. The World Health Organization, or WHO, is an unavoidable actor in any discussion on global health security. To best provide for an explanation of what it is that the much-talked-about multinational organization actually does, I've invited Dr. Vivian Lin, who was until recently the Director of Health Systems at the WHO Western Pacific Regional Office, to talk about the WHO's operations, some projects she's been involved in, the importance of health systems thinking, and the future of the organization. Thanks for joining me today. My pleasure. So I was wondering if before we got into it, you could introduce yourself, your current work and your work history. Sure. You know, in some ways I could say that I was a daughter of the Pacific Rim in the way that I moved. I was uh, born in Taiwan, went to the U.S. when I was 10 years old, educated there and worked in the health planning program in the U.S. before Reagan abolished it a long time ago and also taught while I was doing my doctorate at UC Berkeley and as an activist got involved in all sorts of things, including starting a workers' health center, which became a prototype in the U.S. and for which I actually was recognized by the American Public Health Association as a young public health professional of the year. So that's an important touch point for me in terms of constantly reminding myself the importance of innovation and making change and making things better. But from Berkeley, then I ended up in Sydney, having married an Australian, though doing my doctoral fieldwork in Singapore and Malaysia, on the health of women electronics workers. Then I went to work in Western Sydney for the health department back when there were regional offices and just had the greatest group of the most committed people. And we did things like doing an epidemiological profile, which demonstrated the social determinants and the gradient before people were using those terms. We also did hospital modeling that actually gave shape to the way Western Sydney looks today in terms of the distribution of health resources. So lots of exciting things. But then I moved to Melbourne and took a job in the Victorian Health Department, which actually paralleled the the job I had in New South Wales Health towards the end of my time in New South Wales in head office doing programs and policies. And during this time, I started to get involved in international things. China was just opening up and being one of the, I suppose, few people who worked in health policy and planning and spoke Chinese, as opposed to, you know, one of many medical doctors who had the medical language, but not the policy language. I became involved with the WHO in China. And then by the mid-90s, I just had a fax out of the blue from the World Bank to say, we've just had a midterm review of this regional health planning project in China. We can't get to the bottom of it. And given the work you've done in New South Wales on regional planning, would you be willing to lead a mission to review? So I guess that was really the beginning of a number of years of engagement with the World Bank where I was using all my leave to go to China while trying to raise three kids. The Victorian health minister was extremely supportive 
and I had the the leave. But you know, after a while, you can't do this four times a year as a public servant. So I continued to do that. And then I became the funding executive officer for the National Public Health Partnership. And that really meant also engaging with a number of high income countries around a whole lot of public health policy issues, particularly US and, and UK, but also WHO and the World Bank. And so eventually I got to the point where, well, one day I had the phone call from the vice chancellor at Latrobe who said, we're not going to be appointing from amongst the applicants for the role of the head of the school. And would you be interested? So I thought, okay, you know, I'm one of 20 people they're calling. So here's my CV. And lo and behold, I found myself being offered the position. And I thought, okay, you know, one of the great things about academia is actually having a much more flexibility and autonomy to do these international things. So I went to Latrobe. And of course, during that time, besides all the things that you do in terms of running a school as well as your own research and teaching, I became much more involved in a whole range of international organizations, government boards in Australia and other professional organizations. And then the international work just grew and grew and grew. And I was involved with WHO and World Bank and OSE and DFID. Until one day in 2013, I had the phone call from the regional director at the Western Pacific Regional Office of WHO, who said, we will be having a vacancy as the director of health systems division. Would you have an interest in that? And I thought, sure, why not? And then found myself between 2013 and 2018 as the director for health systems in Wipro, working with 37 countries and areas in, in the region, in many ways, a kind of a culmination of many of the different bits and pieces I have been doing all my career. And in 2018, I hit the mandatory retirement age at WHO. And what I explain to people is retirement age is actually an organizational phenomenon and you retire when you choose to or when it is your own organization. So about this time, I was about to go back to Latrobe and organizing my teaching for the second semester. And then I had a message from the Dean of Medicine at Hong Kong University, who I greatly admire and had the pleasure of working with in my WHO time, who said, how'd you like a few years in Hong Kong? I thought, hey, another adventure? Why not? Hong Kong's always been a fascinating city. I love being in the region. So here I am in Hong Kong as the executive associate dean in the Faculty of Medicine. So this is sort of the long and short of it. Yeah, no, that's really incredibly interesting, actually. That is perhaps one of the most varied and high-achieving histories that I've heard on definitely obviously pertinent to the discussion of global health security and the international. So why I wanted to speak to you today was because I was hoping to get some of your thoughts and reads on the role of international institutions like those you've worked with explicitly in WHO or even with the World Bank in the provision of global health security and in working together to alleviate some of the issues facing the world and global health security, whether they be pandemic preparedness, climate change providing health aid, 
all of these different things. So I'm hoping if you could, maybe first, it's a bit more context, give me an idea of what the office that you've been involved in does or how the WHO operations in the Asia Pacific work. Okay, so of course, the WHO as of last year has a new regional director. So I was there for the second term of Dr. Shin Yong Su, the previous regional director. And the regional office was organized with four technical divisions and a couple of administrative divisions and had 15 country offices. As uh, the head of health systems, I worked alongside the other three technical divisions very closely. One was for non-communicable diseases and health through the life course. It's been renamed uh, Division for Healthier Populations, which is a bit easier to say. One was for a communicable disease control, and one was for health security. And as the health system person, you know, part of my role was to actually help bring everybody together and develop a kind of a systems orientation and a policy approach, because the other divisions were much more focused as vertical programs on quite specific issues. Whereas health system division, while it had its own technical brief, also had this cross-cutting role. So within the health systems division, I had a, a number of different units, health financing, health law and ethics, uh, pharmaceuticals and medical technologies, health information and evidence, service delivery, which included health workforce and traditional medicines, gender equity and human rights. So you could see that across these areas, these really cross-cut across other programs. And then we have the lead for universal health coverage for the sustainable development goals. And we also took the lead on antimicrobial resistance. And we were the only region in the WHO where the responsibility for AMR actually sat within health systems rather than, say, communicable disease or, or health security. What do you think the implications of AMR being covered in that way are? Oh, very, very uh, straightforward. When you have a surveillance area like communicable disease, they really think about the data. And they're looking at particularly because of the way a lot of the concerns grew from microbiology, they're concerned about, say, the level of resistance in the hospitals and collecting data on the different kinds of bacteria and other microbes and the, the level of resistance. Now, from a health system viewpoint, the resistance level, while interesting and important, is not really the critical issue because you could have two hospitals on the same block with completely different resistance rates for the same microbes. So the question is, if you actually want to do something about AMR, the action has to be from a systems viewpoint, not from an epidemiological data collection viewpoint. Obviously, infection and prevention and control is absolutely essential. And you don't need to have data to the third decimal point to actually do something about improving those practices. The data you probably want to have more is actually about the level of antibiotic consumption, which we, of course, looked after from our medicines area. And here, there's a lot of what you do is to change behavior. 
changing the behavior of prescribers, changing the behaviors of dispensers, changing the behaviors of consumers, patients, and families, and getting legislation enacted. So this is really where a lot of the actions needed to be. Now, of course, we're also concerned about the One Health problem and the extent of antibiotic usage in the animal and and food sectors. So here, the, the important thing is actually working intersectorally. So this is part of the governance portfolio, the policy dialogue work that we would do. And of course, a lot of the issues are actually about the financial incentives in the system, whether that's about the way you pay doctors, pay hospitals, whether it's about how pharmacies make their money or whether it's about the trade issues. So again, these issues actually sit in the financing and legislation and medicines side of things. So I really think we got it right in terms of having the AMR issues sitting in health systems. Yeah, no, it definitely sounds like that. In terms of AMR, what else would you say some of the greatest successes or or greatest areas of focus have been for your office, the ones that the WHO has been indispensable? Well, look, I think the universal health coverage, of course, is absolutely key in the sustainable development goals. Let me touch on both of those. You know, what we did in Wipro was we, again, broke the mode. Quite a lot of people go back to a 2010 report on health financing, which has a cube that says if you want to have universal health coverage, you think about how many services, what population, and how much money. Now, so that kind of became an important point back in 2010 in thinking about financing for universal health coverage. But if we actually looked at the definition of UHC, UHC is defined as all people in communities have access to quality health services without undue financial hardship. So when you think only about financing, you're not addressing the equity dimension explicitly, you're not addressing the quality dimension explicitly, and you're not thinking about who's delivering what services. So in many places, the tendency from a narrow financing is to default to health insurance or and thinking about what's the benefit package. But the reality, if we actually look at health systems and what countries are trying to do, the national health policies and, and strategies and plans almost across every country said, you know, had words like universality, equity, access, accountability, quality, vulnerable populations, good health. Now, so just by providing health insurance doesn't ensure real access, and it certainly doesn't ensure quality services and good health or equity. We can point to countries where, yes, financing might have been provided, but the perverse incentives led to overuse of antibiotics, insufficient attention to Uh, prevention, uh, doctors and hospitals making money. So we really needed to think about how does a health system and the way it's organized and financed and the way people can access it actually produces good health and in an equitable manner. And to do it in a way 
that is actually very practical. Now, WHO is often accused, and I think rightly so, for having lovely, beautiful statements, you know, values we can always subscribe to, but it doesn't actually kind of give a lot of guidance on what to do. But members, states always want to know, okay, so what do we do next? We believe in the good cause. What do we do? So what we had the our regional committee back in 2015 adopt was an action framework for universal health coverage. This We were anticipating the sustainable development goals to be adopted in September 2015, and our regional committee was October 2015. So we infused the spirit of SDGs into our document, which is really about leaving no one behind, about equity and sustainable development. So what we saw was important about universal health coverage was contributing to this larger global agenda and ensuring that there was equitable health outcomes and sustainable health outcomes. And so we defined universal health system performance as the core of UHC, and we identified five attributes for good health systems, quality, equity, efficiency, accountability, and resilience and sustainability. And then beyond these, we went to 15 specific action domains. And under each action domains, we nominated the absolutely essential and core actions. So we actually ended up with 43 different policy measures that governments needed to do. So what's probably unusual about this from the rest of WHO was in fact issues like health promotion, like community capacity and health system preparedness for health security and health emergencies was actually integrated into our UHC agenda. And so we took the issue of population health interventions very seriously and prevention. And we were not simply looking just at, you know, the financing, the individual levels of care. And we saw primary health care as absolutely the foundation of a universal health coverage system. So that's the UHC bit. A year later, we also went to the regional committee with our sustainable development goals agenda, the, the SDGs, because after the uh, adoption of the SDGs, at the UN in 2015, the member states were saying, okay, you know, 240 targets across these 17 goals, where do we start? What do we do? So again, we were asked to give some practical guidance. So we started out, so these two things really sit together, but the SDG gave us a scope to think more about the intersectoral element rather than just the health system improvement. So we started out thinking, okay, countries have to, of course, decide on their own goals and targets and what they will do. So the question is, how should countries go about doing this? And here, what we really suggested was, how do they look at a robust information system that could produce data around equity? 
but that in addition to producing data, to monitor progress and to act, which is really the fundamental definition of surveillance in public health terms, they needed a participatory process because monitoring and data is nothing if no one looks at it. And what you had to have was a participatory process where stakeholders came together, looked at the data, created meaning and came to a consensus view of what would you actually be doing with the data and that you prioritized your actions accordingly. So that was the first question that had to be answered, which is how do we actually monitor our progress? The second question is then what would we, how would we prioritize? Where would the win-wins be? And so we looked at where health intersected with other sectors and suggested that there were a number of areas where there could be some high level cooperation and good gain. So urban development, given the world was urbanizing very rapidly, was a critical area for shaping the urban environment so that it can actually help protect, prevent, and promote. We looked at social development because that was so important for equity considerations, as well as community support, health literacy, social networks are incredibly important. The third area was environment and climate change. And of course, we know the way that is absolutely global and absolutely local. So to be able to actually think about our physical, our environment to our planetary environment and look at how health can work together with other. And of course, beyond these quite specific interventions where we could see co-benefits, we must never forget the fundamentals of public financing. And when you have a progressive taxation policy, you could do a lot for equity before you actually also got into it. So these were some areas of specific priority we suggested. But then the third area was then who should actually be, you know, how do we actually do this? Because it's one thing to tell you know, to say we need to do something about urban development, another thing is to actually have a system in place. So we suggested that we needed to think about intersectoral governance through a health and all policies approach, thinking about mechanisms and processes where different government authorities could work together on financing, on budgeting, on planning, on legislation. But it's beyond government. We also needed to work with community organizations and in particular affected communities that often are the least powerful and were, and, and were silenced. So bringing their voice out into the public policy arena was another area that was incredibly important in the way that governance needed to be put in place to make sure that we could progress on the SDGs. Finally, there was the question of, so what specifically should um, the health sector do? Because we recognize so much of our, our health outcomes and health equity is determined by these social and environmental determinants of health, where the action and the interventions 
sit in another sector. So we suggested that the health sector have three roles, informing, influencing, and institutionalizing. Informing because the health needed to have the data to be able to actually say, these are the critical determinants of health, and this is the way in which health is influenced by other determinants, other public policies, and to be able to work with other sectors on the basis of empirical evidence. But data is not sufficient. It's also about people's perception, people's understanding. So having the information from the community's viewpoint and community understanding was incredibly important. So evidence is not just research and data, but it's also evidence about people's perception and and their understanding. So that's, but when you have the information that doesn't necessarily lead to a policy outcome magically, so to be able to influence the public policy system, to navigate the policy space was incredibly important. So public health people really needed to actually strengthen their own skills in terms of leadership and management, understanding of political economy, be able to to navigate and negotiate with a variety of policy sectors. So that's the influencing. And then finally, it's not good enough just to have, you know, a small unit, a few individuals who sat somewhere in a health ministry who could do these things. But it's actually really important to be able to institutionalize this perspective, change organizational cultures and practices, indeed have a whole new generation of public health analysts who actually understood this. So that's a longer term agenda in terms of organizational change and changes in the education system. But that was the SDG agenda that we laid out, which again was also in the forefront of the WHO work indeed ahead of the others, to both take these global agendas seriously, but to also think about how you operationalize both. So yes, I mean, there were there were other pieces that we've gone else to do, but these were really two flagship pieces in response to the global agendas. Yeah, thank you for that. That was a very thorough, perceptive lay of the land. I was wondering, you've spoken throughout these answers about the interaction between member states or or countries and some of the ways in which that interfaces with WHO work. I was wondering whether you saw that or had experienced member states or individual countries as being obstacles in any way to effective functioning, or or perhaps there were some unexpected benefits of having different voices. You know, the greatest pleasure in working at the WHO is actually working with the member states. And in the Western Pacific region, one of the reforms that happened with the previous regional director was to really change the culture so that the WHO became very country-centered. The WHO is a secretariat. It is governed by the member states. But it has a strong culture, perhaps reflecting traditional old-fashioned public health, of top-down vertical programs especially in quite a lot of communicable disease areas, because that's the kind of the history and the origin of much of contemporary public health, where people thought, you know, in Geneva, you would determine the 
the, the global standards and the best practices. And regions would then push it out on implementation and country offices would help governments that have perhaps less resources and lower capacity to really get these things to happen. So that's a traditional culture. But, you know, from a health systems viewpoint, what you actually recognize is that every health system is different from country to country, and they reflect history, they reflect power and politics, they reflect resources available, they reflect a whole range of different issues. So health systems, you know, is kind of the opposite of communicable diseases in many ways. In trying to work from a bottom-up viewpoint, a problem-solving viewpoint, I mean, there are some wrong answers, but there's no perfect right answer. So what you had to help countries to do is to kind of understand its mix of problems and how from a systems thinking perspective, these different problems were interconnected and then figure out what was the strategic entry points. And the strategic entry point could be a communicable disease. It could be a NCD risk factor. It could be a, you know, a financing problem. There's any number of possible entry points once you take a systems view. And so being able to actually work with countries looking at their entry points that reflected the problems and then coming out with a set of potential solutions that would take a long time to implement. That would require negotiations across ministries and the development of new policy solutions is really one of the greatest challenges and rewards of working at the WHO. So then you realize that, you know, what you have to do in coming up with these kinds of policy guidance documents, it is about a compromise situation because all countries are different. So one of the things that we often then went to was thinking about how countries needed to stage themselves. So, you know, when I worked on mental health was one of the first documents we worked on, but also in a number of other technical issues, what we said was, okay, if you've got very little resources, human resources or financial resources, here's a little bit that you start with. This is the most minimum you want to do. When you get more resources, again, human and financial, here's the next lot of things you can do. And if you have a lot, this is the optimal system. So taking that sort of stepwise approach became a way of working to recognize that diversity of context and to help countries move up the ladder of possibilities. And so once we took this kind of an understanding, both of the different pathways and also the different constraints, then it was actually quite easy to get countries to agree because they could see themselves. You were not imposing um, the one and only solution on them, but you recognized what their needs were and where they needed to go. And then the country offices were the ones who then work with them on the day-to-day to translate the technical guidance into whatever it was the constrained reality. So 
yes, occasionally you'd had some country politics, but I think at the HQ level, these global geopolitical issues, you know, show their faces much more strongly. And perhaps partly that is the nature of working at the global level, but it is also that at the global level, they were trying to come up with universal norms. And at the regional level, we were working with the context and thinking about how do you operationalize. So maybe we had the luxury of not getting so caught in the geopolitical issues, even though, you know, we we certainly had instances where, you know, one country loved traditional medicines, another country was skeptical, or one country was protecting the sugar industry or the alcohol industry and other were going after them in trying to address their NCD crisis. So, but that's kind of always at the core of WHO, doesn't matter what program you're in, you're trying to balance the technical and the political. Yeah, I feel like I've definitely got more of a grasp now of how the WHO works as an international intergovernmental organization, you know, the exact internal mechanisms of that. In terms of looking to the future of the WHO or its operations, I was wondering what you saw as either the biggest natural or, or global threats that the WHO needs to adapt to in terms of global health security into the future, or alternatively, what you see as regular hurdles or, or problems within the WHO that need to be overcome. Look, I, I think, in a sense, COVID represents a really, really interesting watershed in that what COVID has done is to shine the light on all the fault lines in a health system, in a society, and in an economy, and in the global order. And we're seeing this, and it's not an acute health security problem. It's actually a chronic problem. It's ongoing. This may go on for a while. So COVID represents a very, very interesting moment in the history of humanity for us to say, are we going to go back to normal, to the system that actually helped produce this problem? Or are we going to do something different? Because the issue isn't just public health. On the other hand, WHO is 70 years old. That means it has a certain culture, which is difficult to change. So how will WHO be able to rise to the challenge of COVID, not just in the most immediate sense of, you know, what is the WHO going to do, but the way that it engages globally, regionally, and at the country level? So let me talk a little bit about some of this history of WHO and what I think are some of the constraints on WHO and the difficulty of culture change. So WHO grew up during the Cold War era. And in a time like that, probably just not getting involved in politics is the safest thing to do as a new organization. The second director general of WHO was there for about 25 years. There was a, quite a visionary Canadian who was the first director general for three years to get it set up. But then 
So much of WHO culture really sort of settled in place during this Cold War era. So fundamentally, developing normative standards, technical standards was its business. Now, when Hafter Moller became the next director general, in a sense, he really, you know, pushed the envelope in many ways reflected the kind of social movements that had happened and political movements that happened around the world in the 1970s between various sorts of social movement that promoted the rights of various groups in society as well as the political independence movements in many countries. So what we really saw was you know, some new tensions within the WHO about was it going to be able to reflect a more contemporary approach. Now, so that really came to the declaration of Ama'ata as a kind of really important and significant declaration about, with a vision about what a health system could be. But then we had the oil crisis, we had structural adjustments. And so global health went into this very challenging period about is it going to be selective primary health care or comprehensive participatory primary health care? And the selective primary health care fitted with the structural reform agenda much better, which is if you haven't got enough money, focus on the most cost effective. And so by 1993, when the World Development Report came out from the World Bank, what we really saw was a narrowing in some ways of the agenda from the declaration of Ama'ata, as well as a shift of the global health technical authority to the World Bank. And that really spoke to, I think, a period of decline for WHO. And in that report, what we saw was the idea of cost-effective benefit packages. So the economists and the epidemiologists, the rise of DALI's disability-adjusted life years came to dominate the, the thinking. And when Brundtland became the head of WHO in 2000, she established WHO as a leader on the global health map, but she also brought with her, or she appointed quite a few of the people who contributed to the World Bank thinking. So Dallies became a WHO piece of work on an ongoing basis, and the health system analysis landed WHO in a lot of trouble, but put WHO back on the map as a leader. But then the Commission on Macroeconomics and Health sort of followed from the 93 report. And while it established the important relationship between health and economic development being mutually reinforcing, it also eventually ended up supporting something like the Millennium Development Goals with this focus vertical programs. And, and then, you know, of course, what we saw really in the last 25 years was this huge 
increase in the complexity of global health architecture, many more public-private partnerships, many more philanthropies that actually have much more money and are less accountable than the WHO. And the WHO also getting money for a focus on the MDGs in the first instance, but this financial driver towards highly targeted vertical programs. And the SDGs and UHC represent another change in this landscape. But in terms of financial and human resources, what we still see is this focus on the vertical program with people having grown up in the system working on vertical programs. And a culture of WHO, which many people laugh and agree with me when I say this to them in the WHO, which is that WHO is like the tertiary hospital equivalent for public health. Now, in a tertiary hospital, you've got different medical and surgical specialties competing for the number of beds they can control. And that signifies the resources they have and the power they have. In the WHO, there aren't the beds, but it's the program and the program dollars. The communicable diseases have the biggest money because everybody's worried about, you know, infectious diseases and happy to give money. So everyone else wants to be just like them. They want to be like them to have the money, to have the staff, to have their technical guidelines, to get the regional offices to roll them out, to have the country offices who can get the countries. So if this is the dominant culture of the WHO, how does the WHO then work with a post-COVID reality? I think that's a very big question because the post-COVID reality suggests that we have to think about solidarity. We have to think about UHC and health security as two sides of the same coin. We have to think systems. We have to think governance. It's not just member states. It's multi-stakeholder. It's about intersectoral governance. It's about complex adaptive systems working at every level. This is not a reality that the WHO people are very well trained in. And the WHO are still going begging to donors and to countries for more money in order to get their staff. And so the current director general you know, came in with a critique, started a transformation process. He's done a reorganization. I am not sure that the culture actually has been changed in any way. So I think we stand at a precipice of possibilities, but I don't know what will happen next. Mm. And that's a very interesting point on which to end our conversation, looking to the future and having talked about all of these structural elements of the WHO and its operations and wondering, more eagerly anticipating to see where it goes and whether it can overcome some of these problems. Thank you very much for joining me today, Vivian, and sharing just part of a wealth of the insights you could have offered. My pleasure. So now we're fortunate enough to have a clearer picture of who the WHO are, what types of operations they run, and what may happen in their future. As Helen Evans discussed in our last episode, the WHO is indispensable as a linchpin of global health security. Better understanding them and their work will be invaluable in the discussions to come. Until next time, when we'll be hearing about another looming spectre in the discussion thus far.
climate change.